Now, to begin this morning, I want to tell you um, a story about a parenting rookie move. Parents, have you ever made a rookie move before? You sure you have? I know you have. Um, my wife and I, we had only been married a few years. We had our, our son, and uh, we lived in a, a tiny one-bedroom apartment. And uh, Hayden, uh, he was little, and I, I cleared this story with him. I don't ever think I throw my, my family under the bus with these stories. I always clear it. Um, Hayden was, was little, and we had him in a bouncer in the living room. And let me tell you what, the kid could bounce. You've never seen a kid bounce like Hayden could bounce. So he's in this bouncer, smile on his face, bouncing, 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 bouncing. Well, me and my wife had to step into the next room to do something. I don't remember what, but I could hear Hayden. Boy, he was in there, bounce, 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 bounce. So a couple minutes go by, and I, we walk back into the living room. Guess what Hayden's still doing? Bounce, 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 bounce. But I look, and I notice above his, his eye, his eyebrow on his forehead, there's, there's something there. It's like, what is that? Then I look, and it's in his hair, and it's all over his clothes. It's like, what is, oh, oh, not that. And so apparently he had, you know, filled his diaper quite well. And every bounce. Now, I look at the kid, and I grab his arms, and there's nothing on his hands. Nothing. Clean hands. But everywhere else, just covered. Now, Hayden's, I don't know, 18 months old, something like that, two years, I don't know, little. Literal conversation, I look at my wife. I say, what do we do? And she says, I don't know what we do. We've never encountered this situation before. So we kind of stood back. Meanwhile, no break. Bounce, 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 bounce. Right? And so uh, Devin says, I think this is a daddy job. <laughs> so we formulated a plan. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll grab the kid. You be ready in the, in the bathroom, and we'll just grab the sprayer, and we'll hose him off. So I pulled Hayden strategically out of his bouncer, and it looked like the Lion King. I held him up, and I walked him in, dropped him in the tub. We stripped off those clothes. Devin hosed him off. And the clothes got promptly thrown into the trash, never to be seen or spoken of again. Now, you probably think, why are you sharing gross stories this morning with us, Josh? Because this is exactly the image that the Apostle Paul gives us. Today we're back in Ephesians. We took a little bit of a break uh, over Christmas and the holidays. And so we're back in. We've been, we've been looking at Ephesians. And if you remember... Uh, we call this series Inheritance because we've said this, that we are so abundantly rich in Jesus Christ. And church, this morning, I pray that as we, we're here together corporately, I pray that it sinks into your very soul, the richness that you have in Christ. Like, we don't even realize the depths and the richness of God's goodness into our lives. You're so rich. But so the first three chapters in Ephesians talk about this inheritance, this richness, um, and then the last three get really practical, and they talk about how do we, how do we apply this, this wealth that God gives us into our lives. And so today, we're going to be talking about the fact that as believers, God has made us new, that he has stripped away the old, the soiled, the corrupt, the dirty, he's taken that off. And he's given us this newness of life. In fact, Paul would write elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He says, Behold, the old has passed away, and the new has come. And I want to remind you, friends, that, that Christ didn't just come to clean up our clothes. 
No, Christ came to give us new clothes. Christ didn't come just to make, you know, some bad men good. Christ came to give dead men life. That is the inheritance that we have. And it changes everything. It's when Christ comes into our lives, we think different. We act different. We want different things. We have this new purpose. We treat people differently. Everything changes. A Christian's life is brand new. Now, does that mean that we will not have struggles? Well, I wish. We still inherit these fleshly bodies that have been corrupted by sin. But you know what? In spite of that, God has made us new and fit us for heaven. And every day there's this renewal process that takes place. And that will be completed, Scripture tells us, when God comes back. And this is what I believe. Outside of Christianity, there is no hope whatsoever. It's the only game in town where we find meaning and value and hope. And so Paul talks about, in Ephesians four seventeen through 24, he talks about the old you and he talks about the new you. And I'm thankful that I've experienced a new me. And so if you have uh, your Bibles, Ephesians 4, starting off in verse 17, we're going to talk about the old you first. Follow along with me. Ephesians 4, 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Now again, remember the first half of Ephesians, Paul tells us that we have all these riches in Christ, and now he tells us, what we do with those riches. Paul says, knowing how rich you are in Christ, why would you ever look back to the old way? Paul says, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, being that most of us in here are probably Gentiles, that is to say, outside of the Jewish faith, outside of the Jewish um, nationality, what does he mean, don't walk like the Gentiles? Well, Paul is referring to the ungodly, the unregenerate, those who are not Christians. He says Christians don't live like those who are not Christians. Christians don't compromise their convictions because it's the easy thing to do. Christians don't sell out. They don't live like the surrounding culture. Now can we be honest? We live in a very distorted and confused culture where bad is often called good, where evil is often celebrated, and maybe at times we're tempted to think that we have it harder than the Christians that have gone before us. Maybe we tend to think it's harder to be a Christian in our day and age, or maybe we tend to think that it's harder to raise kids in the current cultural climate, and I honestly get that, but it was the same for the Ephesians. Maybe it was even worse for the Ephesians because the church in Ephesus, all of these churches were smack in the middle of unbelievable immorality. The culture was unabashedly pagan. Ephesus was the leading cultural and commercial city in the Roman Empire. And it was famed for its temple to Artemis. In fact, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world. But this temple was a bastion of corruption. Incredibly, incredibly immoral. In fact, historians rank um, Ephesus as one of the most sexually explicit cultures in Asia Minor. Um, any sort of sexual abnormality, aberration you can think of was present in Ephesus. Maybe even some that you can't think of was present in Ephesus. In fact, the temple to Artemis was also a bank because people were scared to go in and take anything out lest the gods judge them for removing something from the temple. And so as a result of that, um, about a quarter mile plot within the temple was a harbor for criminals because 
people were scared to go in and remove even a person. And so it was just this perfect background for corruption and immorality. But that is the amazing thing about the gospel, is it reaches, the light reaches into dark places. The amazing thing about the gospel is no matter what our background, Christ redeems that and he gives us new clothes to put on. And so many members of the church in Ephesus would look to the life that they previously lived at times with shame. But again, this is the picture of the gospel. The old is done away with and that the new has come. In fact, members in the church in Ephesus would sometimes meet people out in the public square and they knew what their lifestyle was. And they would pull at them to return. There was this constant temptation to return to the old way and the old walk of life. And so Paul writes to this church and he says, Ephesian believers, stand firm in your faith. Don't go back to the old ways. 4.17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now friends, I know we face many temptations. I know there is this constant siren's call to go back to old habits or temptations or addictions. Let me remind you of something. It simply is not worth it. Sin always beckons and it always looks nice. But it always leads to suffering, isolation. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. And so Paul says we no longer live that way anymore. And so what he does, he gives this contrast between the old me and the new me. Between the old you and the you that Christ has come into and changed. And so let's look at the old you. Four things. Paul says this, the old you had a thinking problem. Look at uh, 17 again, the end of that. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now the old you thought differently. After Christ, our thinking changes. The more we love Christ, the less we should love sin. The more we have this awareness of the costliness of our sin, that is the precious life of Jesus Christ, and not only that, but the practical costliness in our own lives that my sin always leads to some form of destruction for me. The more we understand that, the literally, the more we change. And so an unbeliever literally cannot think straight. They don't understand the cause of their problems, nor do they understand the solutions. And they try to solve the problems of life with their own solutions, and they're always met with futility. Now, the amazing thing for Christians, though we don't always do it well, is at the very least, at least we understand what our problem is. Every problem in my life, the underlying cause is sin in some capacity. Every time I'm at crosswise with someone else it's because of my sin or their sin or more likely both of our sins and I also knew the solution the solution is repentance and to say you know what God I have to do things your way but for the unbeliever they don't understand the underlying problem or the solution and there's no amount of money or education or medication that we can turn to that will solve our underlying problem if you don't believe me read Solomon in the Old Testament Solomon said you know what I didn't deny myself anything if I want to try it I tried it and I met with this understanding that it is all futile and mounts to nothing. Scripture teaches when you become a new person that your thinking changes. In fact, the word repentance literally means a change of mind. Your thinking shifts when you come to Christ. You no longer desire, though you may still succumb to temptation, 
You no longer desire it. That's why the Apostle Paul also would say, you know, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, sometimes I find myself doing those things. The desire's not there, but sometimes those old habits call. But Paul would say elsewhere in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I believe this is what Scripture teaches. The way we think drives how we act. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. What is in your heart flows out into your life. I think that's why Scripture constantly calls us to read God's Word and hide God's Word in our heart because that saturates our mind and changes the way we think. Look at verse 18. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. The old you did not understand the truth. Paul says the old self, those who don't know Christ, he says they're darkened in their understanding. This is a state of spiritual blindness. It's not knowing the truth. And I think so often we look at the world as Christians, or at least I do sometimes, and every now and then I become a little pious and I get on my high horse and I think, how can you all live like this? Why do you do the things that you do? And God has to come along and smack me off my high horse and say, hey, remember before you were a Christian? Why did you do the things you did? And Paul would say, because it's a state of spiritual blindness where people are groping around. They're trying to find the answers to life's big questions, and they're coming up empty. And so what is our job as Christians? It's to show people the light. It's not to fight with them, and it's so easy to get into this mentality, I know because I've done it, to where I feel like I have to just make you see the truth. And I can't make anyone see the truth, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can speak the truth, and I can love people, and I can love them in in a way that is not self-righteous, but in a way that truly, truly cares for them. Paul says the old self, those who don't know Christ, they're darkened in their understanding. Well, what causes this? Well, I think one thing that causes this is Scripture says we have an adversary. We have this enemy, the Bible says, that roars like a lion seeking to whom he may devour. There, there is someone out there, the Bible calls Satan, that does not want us to walk in the light of Christ. It doesn't want us to come to know Christ because misery loves company. I think that's one reason people walk in blindness. I think another reason is because there is a multitude of bad ideologies, bad theologies, bad worldviews, a multiplicity of religions that all make truth claims. And unless you really want to know the truth, you'll never find it. I think another reason people walk in blindness is because of personal choice. Paul talks about in Romans that we willfully suppress the truth because it goes against the way that we want to live our lives. People walk in blindness. Paul says, verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. The old self, the unbeliever, is hardened against God. And this is the result of the fall. Before Christ, you did not understand the truth. Now notice that I didn't say you didn't understand a truth because I believe this is what Scripture teaches. That there is a single, unifying, objective truth that is, remains the same whether I accept it or deny it, whether I believe it or want it to be so or not. You don't get to pick your own truth. I had somebody tell me one time, well, you know what? He argued and argued. He, said, I, he says, I don't believe there is any truth. He says, there's no truth. And I said, really? I said, was well, that true? 
I'll get back to you. There's only one truth. And if, if, if this truth isn't the truth, we are in grave trouble. Because then everybody gets to pick essentially what they want to do. And I don't know how the world survives that, which is kind of what we're seeing in a lot of ways. Now, Paul goes on. He says, the old you was calloused. Look at verse 19. He says, they have become callous. Now, I can remember as a kid, I was uh, 14 or 15. I wanted to learn how to play guitar. I got my grandpa's old acoustic Gibson guitar, which I still have and play. But the first time I started playing, I enjoyed it. About an hour later, the tips of my fingers were throbbing from raking my fingers down these, these metal wires on this guitar. They were sensitive. But the longer and the longer I played as you're continually raking your fingers across metal strings, they became less and less sensitive until eventually calluses were on the tips of my finger and I couldn't, didn't have a whole lot of feeling in my fingertips. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying that fallen humanity is insensitive to God. And the longer we push back and the longer we run and the longer we say, you know what, God, I don't want the things that you want, the harder and harder it is to hear God's voice. Our sense of right and wrong are dulled, though it be willfully. Man rejects how God has revealed himself to us. We look everywhere for the answers to life's big questions. We'll believe lies that we might continue our current lifestyle. You know, we're the most educated group of people that has ever been. But Paul says this in Romans 1.22. He says, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools because they denied the outward evidence of a creator. So much of the world rejects the things of God at their own peril. We've torn down the fences of morality without really asking why were those fences put up in the first place. Much of, much of culture says there is no God, yet we're surprised when people live that way. Now let's ask ourselves, why is there corruption? Why are there scandals in the highest of places? Why are mental health problems rampant? Why is there no commitment? Why is there murder and violence and injustice? Because man is continually taught in our age that there is no universal truth and that the idea of God is simply a myth. And if you walk on any university campus, you'll hear this over and over and over. There is no God. There is no unifying truth. And if that's the case, why is our culture so incredibly shocked when people begin to live that out? You tell man that there's no God and that there's no truth, and then you act horrified and appalled when man lives that way. There's only one truth. Paul goes on. He says, the old you, the old man, the old clothes were impure. The old you was impure. Look at verse 19. He says, they've become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The lost person, the old self, is incapable of self-discipline. The old self says, you know what, if it feels pretty good, why should I deny myself this? It's unbridled hedonism. I should give myself whatever it wants at all costs. Now, the term here that Paul uses for sensuality and impurity leave room for a host of different sins. It could be even, even be something like greediness, um, this desire to have more of materialism. But certainly, Paul meant to include sexual sins as well. And so here we address a Christian sexual ethic. It's all throughout the scriptures. And in fact, this morning in Canada, uh, pastors 
um, all throughout Canada are preaching on a biblical view of sexuality because there was a law put into place recently um, that makes speaking about sexuality in certain ways a hate crime. And so they said, you know what, we don't want to push back against the government just because it's the government. In fact, Paul says, submit to your governing authorities. But these Canadian pastors said this, when you ask us or tell us we can't do what God has called us to do, we're going to push back. And so they've called on American pastors to speak on a biblical sexual ethic. Well, I didn't have to deviate too much because it comes up in our text. And I think often Christians are uncomfortable talking about sexuality. In fact, perhaps some might feel that they shouldn't be spoken of from the pulpit. But here's what I think, church. I think we have to talk about these things. I think we have to. I think um, we have to get comfortable having uncomfortable conversations because they seem to be happening everywhere else but the church. But Paul talked about it. Jesus talked about it. So we talk about it. We have to promote a Christian understanding of sexuality. There was a pagan view of sexuality everywhere in Ephesus. So Paul writes, and last I checked, there's a pretty pagan view of sexuality in our culture as well. Now, here's the thing. God is not some cosmic killjoy prude. In fact, if I remember, God created sexuality in the first place. The Christian view of sexuality is, is not limiting. It's freeing. God has a specific plan. And anything contrary to that causes us problems as people. Just look at our culture, friends. Parents, we have to talk about these things with our kids. Not just God's design for sexuality, but also why does it even matter in the first place? And we have to have these conversations earlier and earlier. Now, currently the average age of first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. Average age. Recent study as of last year says that 90% of teens have viewed porn online and 10% admit to daily use. Now this is partly due to an increase in smartphone usage among children and adolescents with elementary age smartphone ownership rising to over 50% in recent years. But let me tell you that again. 9 out of 10 of teenagers have accessed pornography online. And here's what I see. I think we are letting the world teach our kids a sexual ethic because often as Christian parents we're too uncomfortable or as a church we're too uncomfortable to talk about it. So what is a Christian sexual ethic? Well, it's simply this. This is no surprise. It's painted cover to cover in Scripture. That sexuality is to take place within the confines of a marital relationship between a man and a woman. And anything outside of that, any sexual gratification outside of that is prohibited in Scripture. Now, this is what I see in Christianity so, so much is we want to single out homosexuality when heterosexual Christians have destroyed heterosexuality, whether that be through the use of pornography or infidelity or lust or extramarital and premarital sex. So we have to hold all of this intention as Christians. Now, of course, the Bible prohibits, prohibits homosexual behavior as well. And I have friends that live a homosexual lifestyle, and they have told me this before. Well, Josh, you know, I look at what you have with your wife, and I know you're happy. Why can't I be happy too? And this is just my point. It's because I know you will never find the happiness you're looking for outside of the way that God has called you to live. And so when I preach what Scripture says, it's not my desire to make anyone unhappy. In fact, it's to see them walk in the newness that Christ has laid out for them. 
know the amazing thing, though, about our past sins, and this was, the Ephesians were no different, as they lived this decadently sexual lifestyle. When grace comes in to our hearts, all of that is washed away. We no longer are bound to our past. Now, we're getting low on time. Let's keep moving. Verse 19, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And he talks about greed here because when, I am, when my mind and my life are about pleasing only me, greed enters the picture and other people become my means to an end. And certainly this applies to sexuality as well. And I'll tell our students this. If anybody asks you to do something sexually that you don't want to do or that Scripture prohibits, that person does not love you no matter what they say. You're being used as a means to their end. Now, that's the old you. Can we talk about, just for a moment, the new you? Look at verses 20 through 24. Paul says, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through your deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. Now here's the thing. The new you, it's Christ-centered. Look at verse 20. That's not the way you learned Christ. Now, Paul doesn't say that's not the way you learned about Christ because you can learn about someone and not know that person. In fact, I knew a lot about my wife before we started dating and before we got married, um, but we weren't in a relationship together. You can learn all kinds of stuff about Jesus, sit in church on every Sunday morning, maybe even read God's Word. But Paul here is speaking of coming to know Christ, the salvation experience. This is not the way you learned Christ. The mark of a Christian is Christ at the center of our lives, the way we think, the way we act, the way we love. Paul says this, He says, the new you knows the truth. Look at verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Salvation occurs at a single point in life where you were taught the truth, you came to believe the truth, you accepted the truth, you repented, you trusted the truth. A Christian knows the truth. Yet as we walk and walk and walk and walk in Jesus, this truth comes to saturate our minds more and more. In fact, I learn new truths about God as a growing Christian. Christian, you have the truth. Be diligent in God's word. Read it, apply it, share it. Paul goes on to say, the new you is free. Now listen to this. The new you is free from the old you. Verse 22. He says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul is literally painting the picture of removing old, soiled, stained garments. And those are done away with. And we have this new, complete unsoiled white linen that we are placing. The Christian hears and responds to God. We embrace his truth and he removes all of our sins. And I don't know, maybe you need to hear this this morning. There is nothing in your past that defines your present or your future because Christ has taken all of that off. In the same way, we pulled Hayden out of that bouncer. We stripped him of those dirty clothes. We threw those away, never to be seen again. And we placed him in new clothes. Christian, that is what Christ has done for you. So don't wallow in your shame and your guilt. You are a new person. Paul goes on, the new you embraces the newness. The new you embraces the new. Verses 23 and 24, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, more renewal, and to put on the new self, those new clothes, those new garments created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we become Christians, our minds are changed. God renews our minds. We can understand spiritual things. It's an ongoing process. Are you going to struggle? Absolutely. What we dwell on impacts how we live, but we embrace the newness of life that God 
has given us. We are new, but not fully redeemed. That will happen when Christ returns. So this morning, Christian, can I ask you this? Have you been perhaps struggling? Maybe you're a believer, you're a Christian, but you've gone back at times and you've put on these old, dirty garments. And Paul says, that's done away with. Or or perhaps you are struggling with distant memories of your past when, when Christ says, the old is gone and the new has come. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord. Are you, have you been given this newness of creation? My prayer is that if you haven't, what is stopping you from doing so? Because life will never make sense for you outside of Jesus Christ. What about this? Are we standing on the truth? Parents, are we having conversations with our kids or conversations with people in general that might be awkward or difficult but necessary? Are we loving others? Are we more concerned about just being right? Because the whole point of the gospel is not about saying, hey, we got it right, but it's about saying, hey, let me tell you what Jesus did for me, that in my old soil clothes, he came and he gave me newness of life. And I want you to have that so incredibly much. Walk 